Hello, everyone, and welcome to Singularity Podcast. Singularity Podcast is a feature of Singularity Weblog, where you can go and listen to it or download it in full. As you may already know, my name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and as always, I will be the man with the questions. Today, I'm very privileged to have Professor Kevin Warwick as my guest with the answers. Kevin is a professor of cybernetics at the University of Reading, England, where he carries out research in artificial intelligence, robotics, and cyborgs. Kevin is best known, however, for his pioneering experiments involving a neurosurgical implantation into the median nerves of his left arm to link his nervous system directly to a computer, and also with the first purely electronic direct communication between the nervous system of two humans, which was, uh, which was done between him and his wife. So, hi, Kevin, and welcome to Singularity Podcast. It is great to have you here today. Hi, Nicola. Looking forward to it. Very well. Uh, it is entirely my pleasure, Kevin. So, without further ado, let me start the interview with the following question. Kevin, can you please tell us a little bit more about yourself, such as your background and your education, but especially why and how you got interested in issues such as robotics, artificial intelligence, and the technological singularity? Yeah, I, I guess as a teenager, I was always into technology, um, building things, but I, I had a motorcycle and liked playing with it and making it go faster, that sort of thing, changing it. At the same time, I enjoyed science fiction. Um, Michael Crichton, particular, I was a particular fan of his. The Terminal Man, he wrote, um, uh, when I read that when I was uh, a teenager, absolutely fantastic, I thought. Not just from a science fiction point of view, but from the point of view of science. Surely in the future, and I think a lot of Crichton's work, you tend to read it and think, surely this is going to be possible in the future. And uh, later on, uh, I got involved with robotics, little, little things, you know, little wheeled robots with ultrasonics and, uh, and moving the wheels around, and looking at how they are intelligent and how their intelligence is different to humans. Uh, so to actually experiment by linking the two things together, some of the science fiction things I'd read and the robotics and AI that I was working on, it just seemed to happen naturally. And I mean, in the academic world, there are lots of people that are trying to get you to do boring things, to write <laughs> papers that nobody ever reads. And um, I, I don't know that I wanted to live my life like that. I wanted to actually experiment. And that's something I've always enjoyed doing. You know, practical experimentation is something that's really important. That's very interesting because um, the reason why I decided not to continue with academics and do a PhD after my master's was uh, similar impressions to yours. Um, I wrote that I the way I got involved into being interested into artificial intelligence and the technological singularity was by writing a paper, my research paper for my master's degree called Hacking Destiny, Critical yeah. Security at the Intersection Between Machine and Human Intelligence. 
This is a plug. I know it. This is a plug. You have to, re- <laughs> you have to citation. No, actually, no. I'm quite. I'm quite happy with with the blog so far. <laughs> Everyone will cite it now. <laughs> uh, I wish. I wish. No, but one of the criticisms that I got then was uh, that I didn't engage very much the literature of the '70s, or mm-hmm. not sufficiently. Uh, and my argument in return was that there is an abyss of change from what was done in the 1970s until what is being done in the last decade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, let me uh, refocus our discussion back on you and ask you, so what is your motivation behind your work? Is it uh, general scientific curiosity? Is it humanitarian? Is it sort of the desire to transcend biology? Or um, I, I think certainly scientific... Yeah, certainly scientific investigation. I just want to find what's around the corner, look outside the box. There's no question about that. I think there's also a bit of pioneering spirit. Um, When I look at who are my heroes, uh, which would have been a good question from you, uh, it would be um, Captain Scott, the guy that went to the South Pole and got there too late, or Charles Lindbergh flying, a, you know, people like that. I, I guess John F. Kennedy and those sort of things say, yeah, we're going to put man on the moon. In 10 the, years. The, in a, yeah, fantastic. Yeah. And then to go and do it. And uh, so not only to say, let's do something and then to deliver it, but those sort of people have been my inspiration. Um, and then I wanted to try and do that in the scientific world to actually achieve something that is a little bit different, that I feel, yes, we can do this, but then to go ahead and do it has been for me. I, humanitarian is, a I, I would say, not at all, because I do see humans as being very, very limited in what we can do. Mm. And the sooner we get into post-humanity and cyborgs and so on, I, the better, really. So I know there is a lifeboat society or something they get try and get you to sign up that you want to save humanity. Well, I don't know that I do want to save humanity. The sooner we get <laughs> we get done with humanity and move on to something that's a little bit better, so be it. And to me, the singularity is about moving on from humanity. It's not getting humans living through the singularity as humans, but maybe getting humans living through the singularity as cyborgs. We, we come out of it as something a lot better, and we say bye-bye to humans, uh, unless there's a few of them around that still want to um, live on islands and something and don't, don't cause any problems. Mm-hmm. That's very funny, because I'm actually on the advisory board of the Lifeboat Foundation. Oh. I've just, I've just ruined our uh, so no, I'll no. be switched off. Uh, actually, we're in complete agreement. I, I, I think we agree very much about the future. So, and that's one but of I, the reasons why I, think, why I invited you I, here today. I think there is the other aspect because I, a lot of the work I do is with surgeons. And mm-hmm. they they talk a different language and it can be difficult to uh, understand what they're saying as to what's possible. Um, But it's worth the effort because I think we do have a lot of technology now available that we can use to help people. Um, So I'm all for helping the people that are around now. When somebody has Parkinson's disease or Alzheimer's disease or a stroke, 
it's terrible when we know, well, we have the technology, we could do a lot more for those people. And I wish there were more folk researching in the area. So there's a lot we can do. And uh, certainly I would like to do a lot more. But my main goal, I believe, is scientific investigation, looking outside the box. So let me zoom out back a little bit and, and ask you, maybe we should set the terms because there's some disagreement among the experts about the meaning of terms such as the technological singularity or even artificial intelligence. So yes. what in your opinion is artificial intelligence and how is it and what is the technological singularity? Um, I'll answer the second question first. Uh, I mean, how I see the singularity technically, I, I think lots of people are going to have different views and opinions on it. Um, I see it as a point where uh, intelligent machines or upgraded humans, the cyborg, mm -hmm. are at a point where they make the decisions, that they are the species that then becomes the dominant species. So the time of humans of being in the driving seat, if you like, comes to an end and it is either cyborgs or intelligent machines. So in a sense, it's a bit like the Terminator scenario, as a, but for real. That's, mm -hmm. how I, that's how I see it. It's a realistic thing. Um, it's very dangerous for humans if you want to stay as a human, obviously. Yeah. But if you're happy to upgrade, then um, a way to go. Uh, and I do see a, the cyborg that I'm interested in and talking about is one who has an intellectual upgrade. So their brain is matrix style linked into an intelligent network or they have chips plugged into it or a combination of those things. Mm -hmm. I think the, the, the matrix style port I think has a lot more to offer but that's just a matter of choice maybe. So it's that sort of entity that is intellectually way, way above better um, than humans that then is making all the decisions. Or it could be intelligent machines. Uh, so that's the technological singularity. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of AI, uh, yeah, what is intelligence? Um, I was just reading your book, Key, by the way. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, and that's trying to oh, that's thanks. That's, everybody's that's... plugging everybody's plugging you plug your master's thesis i plug it for the book as well this is great <laughs> stuff yeah. Every, everyone's switched off now with all this plug but um i mean they're trying to get to grips with what intelligence is because i think a lot of definitions of intelligence and and then ai pointing to human intelligence and particular types of human intelligence um, they forget about people with dementia. They forget about people with Alzheimer's disease. You know, these are still people. Uh, and I really feel everybody is intelligent in some way, but even cows and sheep and bats and ants are intelligent in a way that is suitable for them, that is suitable for their body. And machines are intelligent in their way. And even with AI which is like machine type intelligence, you get different types. You have a computer 
based system and some computers are more powerful than others you have microprocessor based system i showed you this little robot the well, rat what? brain one the rat brain yeah. yeah and we so we grow the brain in there so it's a biological brain in a robot body i would see it as a form of ai a machine intelligence but it's it's biological is it emotional well, it probably is, yes, if creatures are emotional. And if you just take some of the philosophers like John Searle, mm -hmm. very eminent, excellent philosopher, he talks about uh, emergent behavior. Consciousness in humans is due to the emergent nature of human neurons. If we put enough of them together, we get a conscious human. Maybe we need the body as well. What we're doing now is taking human neurons, growing them, building brains with human brain cells. So are we going to have a conscious robot? Well, according to John Searle, we are. And if that's not artificially intelligent and conscious. So I'm very open to it. I think every, even maybe like the Red Indians said, rocks and stones have a soul and are intelligent mm -hmm. well probably they do it's a very simplistic version e even a very simple switching relay is probably intelligent in a very very simplistic way just like a simple slug has about nine brain cells it's it's not gonna win iq tests and things like that but it gets by as a slug it does okay and uh, for humans a hundred billion is all right but if we had 600 billion or whatever, we'd be able to do a lot more thinking in a lot more complexity. Yeah, but would we really be able to do a lot more thinking? I mean, b based on what I've read so far, we're only using a fraction of our brains, aren't we? And then, oh. so having more is not necessarily better. I mean, that's also another yeah. uh, argument in in between species such as us and whales, for example. I mean, a whale brain is much, much bigger than my and your brain put together. Does that mean that it's smarter than both of us? I mean... Yeah, not necessarily, obviously. But, I mean, if you asked anybody, would you like to have half the number of brain cells that you've got or twice as many, <laughs> they, would, they would probably go for the twice as many options. For no, I, Then they'll go for more. I agree with you. It's not everything. But it... You know, if you do have more, you can do something with them. I, I don't know that I agree with this thing that we only use a fraction of our brain. At any one time, at any one instant, yes, you're right. You know, I'm not using all of my brain at the moment in any way that I could. But that's how the brain works. It generalizes. You don't, it's, it's not, strictly speaking, a parallel processing mechanism. It's a complex network. Some of the neurons are firing at any one time. Some are sitting there having a rest, if you like. I mean, when, when we grow this, this rat brain, we can look at this under the microscope yeah. and we can see there are activities in different regions and then some of the neurons some of them don't seem to do a lot but they do do some things occasionally and that's going on in our brain so at any one time yes we are just using a fraction of the brain but then some of the neurons just kick in occasionally 
for particular reasons. Maybe you see a very attractive woman, zing, 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 certain of the neurons start going. They've been dormant. They've been there, you know, they've been lying there for about the last month or something like that. And suddenly they start kicking in and doing things maybe that you don't want them to do. But it's different brain cells kick in at different times. So overall, I think we do use Maybe not all, but most of our brain. So I wouldn't mind having a few extra brain cells. But where they exist is a different question. And what is their nature? Mm-hmm. You know, maybe I would like to have a network memory that is remote, but is directly connected into my brain. I wouldn't mind having a little more brain cells myself. And speaking of the numbers of brain cells... Um, and how intelligent AI is at the moment. Um, For the purposes that I'm interested in with respect to a a potential technological singularity, um, things would really start changing at the moment that AI is probably as smart as human beings um, and eventually much smarter than us, potentially. So my question to you in that sense is, what are the benchmarks on the way I assume you would agree that that's the goal. Equalization between the brain capacity or or our intellectual um, capabilities between AI and humans. Well, it's it's difficult because already AI is better than human intelligence in many ways. Obvious obvious ways, like mathematical processing. Logic. logic memory capabilities Uh, there's all sorts of ways dealing with multi-dimensionality is something human brain is limited to three dimensions Mm -hmm. computers deal with hundreds enormous advantage i would love to just feel what it's like to experience four or five dimensions i can't wait for that i don't know idea it might blow my mind but we'll go for it so i think already (laughs) ai is better outperforms human intelligence. So there's some overall um, power of intelligence, if you like, that that's where you get the equalization that you're talking about. And it could it could be very difficult for us to decide, are we getting very close? Or maybe there are simple things like the Turing test. Do you have uh, a new Turing test of your own, for example, or...? How do you no. gauge whether you succeeded in improving the, the, the capabilities, for example, of the brain ro- of the rat robot compared oh. to, say, version yeah. 1.0 and version 2.0 and 3.0? How do you yeah. see the progress there? Do it's, you? Very, it's very, very different. I mean, uh, what I can report is 2008, so it's almost two years ago, October 2008, <laughs> we held here in University of Reading, England, as close as we could come to trying to do the Turing test because there are all sorts of parameters. Just as Turing had said, this is how, with lots of different investigators and machines, and this is how you must do it, we tried to get as close as we could to see where things are. And in 2008, one machine uh, convinced essentially 25% of the investigators. They didn't. They, they thought the machine was human. It, yeah. it fooled them. And Turing spoke of 30% for what it's worth. 
it, it's actually a bloody difficult thing for a machine to do. It's not just trying to fool you that you don't know. It's trying to fool you into thinking it is human and the human it is up against is a machine. Yeah. And it's, the, it's, it's a double foot. So it's actually a very, very difficult task. And the point is we're getting to the stage now where machines are getting very, very close um, and it, I, partly it's that we haven't had an official Turing test, I think, since then in mm -hmm. the world. So we don't really now maybe machines would do it, which to me says, all right, we're getting to the stage where machines of that type can fool you. You don't know. Is it a human? Is it a machine? We then throw in some of the mathematics and memories and even now we're starting to get into a, a danger zone, maybe a being sucked into a vortex towards the singularity. I don't know if Ray Kurzweil has talked of the a vortex towards the singularity. <laughs> he, he, he probably will now, but I, I, I think we could be getting into that sort of cone that we're, we're sucked in and there's no way back. So I know there is the singularity, we're not there yet, but the next step before that is getting into a being sucked into this vortex where we can't get out of the singularity. It's going to happen whether we like it or not. And so, are we inside of the vortex right now, or we're just at the event horizon? I think we're at the event horizon, and maybe things like the Turing test I see as being the yes, now we're in the, the vortex. pushover. With, with, you know, unless we start running like mad in the opposite direction, which no way are we going to do that, we're going, we're going through it. And it's just a matter of time and how long are we going to take to get through it, we don't know. Yeah, speaking of running into the other direction, uh, there are some very notable people who have voiced actual or potential opposition to it and very violent scenarios in response to the birth of AI or potential birth of AI. So, for example, uh, one of them, if I remember, is Hugo de Garis, who wrote about oh, yeah. the Artilect War. Another yeah. one of all people is, for example, Richard Clark, uh, mm -hmm. the former uh, anti-terrorist star of the US, who wrote a book called Breakpoint, in which, interestingly, uh, sort of new new Luddite medievalists of all sorts, uh, from all kinds of religious backgrounds, fundamentalist religious backgrounds, such as Christian, Muslim, Jewish, and so on, uh, and other extremists, sort of gathered together in opposition to any such uh, technological advancement. Not only AI, but also genetics, uh, defeating aging, uh, cybernetics uh, or the cyborgization of the human and so on and so on. So how do you see the potential of conflict and maybe even very sharp divisions between within our own species as people who are transhumanists like you and me potentially or post-humanists in support of the research and strong believers that it has to be done and it would lead us to a better life and, and everything positive and then on opposing us, uh, this, I don't want to call them nihilists, but at least they're new yeah. Luddite me medievalists well, who sort of want to stop time. 
I think Hugo referred to them as the Terrans, the, the Terrans. people that yeah, that's right. Earth as they are. I yeah. mean, it's a very good way of describing them. Um, I mean, I I really feel pushing ahead with the technology. Uh, it, it's going to get to a stage before too long where the, the Terrans, well, there's, there's no point. You know, they're not going to have any power to do anything about it. I don't think, again, we're at that stage yet because intelligence is the key element with intellectual capability. And Nietzsche spoke of this, pure philosophy, man and the superman. Uh, how do humans treat cows or sheep? If a cow came into the room now and started saying, moo, 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 I, I'm not going to stop talking to you and say, oh, yeah, I've got to, you know, and, and say, yes, I will do what you want to the cow. Of course, we're going to, we might shoot the cow and we will eat it or something like that. <laughs> and, and that's really how I view the Terrans or the, the, the fundamental religious people. Not to eat them, I don't mean <laughs> to shoot them, but, <laughs> but the, the point of view that if they came into the room in a few years' time, and started saying, "You can't do this. You can't do that." Hey, you know, we're thinking in hundreds of dimensions. We're communicating by thought. We've got all sorts of other sensory input. Life for us, we're on a completely different plane. They would have been of no consequence. They will be still operating in three dimensions. So I think we are moving through the singularity in a, into a whole new intellectual plane. And those that move through it will have intellectual powers that they're just out. The, the Terrans will be the cows of the future. If you see what I mean, intellect. I, I do, I do, and I've heard you make that analogy before. And I actually shared it uh, with one of my previous interviewees from Australia. His name is J James Harvey, and he wrote a book called Singularia: Being at the Edge of Time. Um, and his response was, he shared a very uh, particular experience uh, with me about uh, a very beautiful moon night. Uh, and overhearing the cows from the farm next door to him mooing against the, the moonlight or something like that. And his response to that was that he would highly recommend to anyone and everyone to listen every once in a while to the, to the sound or the mooing of the cows and how incredibly enriching that could be as an experience at an experiential level rather than a logical or rational level. So yeah, he... Thought that you undervalued the mooing of the cows greatly. <laughs> no, no, not at all. I mean, I think there's a lot of value to listening to cows, watching <laughs> sheep, listening to birdsong. I'm not saying, but it, it's what is the power of that cow mooing or the sheep? And how do we respond to it? And I'm sure when the cow made the noises that it did or the cows made the noises, he did not instantly go and do what the cows might have been suggesting 
because it meant nothing. <laughs> it was it was just noises to him. They might have been beautiful noises in the night, but he didn't instantly go and do things in response to what the cows were saying to him. He got on with his life and thought that was a nice noise and then came on and did a, a, a program with you. And I think that's the point. If the Terrans are making silly noises which to them is saying, stop what you're doing. We're, you know, we don't want you to do that. They will just be silly noises to us. That's it, simple. So we're not going to listen to that. Intellectually, what do they know? Just like now, intellectually, what do cows know? They're not going to put the world to right. The cows are not going to solve the Arab-Israeli conflicts. Uh, we have our own itinerary that is mm -hmm. way beyond, way above those. So mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't disagree that it's nice to listen to cows from time to time. And in the future, cyborgs will enjoy, in an, of a quiet evening, listening to humans making the silly <laughs> noises that they do. Very interesting. So um, let me zoom back also a little bit more and, and ask you about a bigger prediction, uh, a very hard question. Uh, generally, people within the field of, field of computer science or artificial intelligence tend to agree that, that eventually we may reach the point where AI exists uh, and is recognized widely so. But they largely disagree, I believe, on the timeline how yes. far off we are from that moment. So some people say, well, it's going to be at least 100 years. We're very far off. It's baby steps we're doing right now. Other people like Ray Kurzweil say, well, by 2045 or 2030 or something like that, I think his prediction is about 2040s that the technological singularity is likely to occur. So yeah. what, in your opinion, is, is your estimate? Do you accept Ray Kurzweil's timeline or... <laughs> I mean, I, I agree. It is not a point of whether it will or not. Um, I think the only people that say it will not are probably religious believers that the God is there and not going to let this happen. But anybody that looks at things from a, a sensible, technological perspective says, yes, it's going to happen. Uh, to be honest, I think my guess, and it is just a guess because mm -hmm. you don't know how quickly the military are going to push things forward and so on, yeah. is, is Ray is, is, is not too bad. You know, I might say it's 2041, but not 2040 or whatever. But it's, it's in that sort of time scale. Maybe, as you say, as early as 2030 could, could easily be. Um, I, I wrote, while we're plugging books, I wrote a book a few years ago called March of the Machines. Yeah. Before, before the Terminator Rise of the Machines came about, they obviously was pinching the title from me. Um, but March of the Machines looked at, and this was about 1997, yeah. looked at a future 50 years ahead where we are just gone through the singularity if you like so the 2040 2045 scenario is is about where we're at so I, I i think that's about the you have to say um given the speed of technology and ray talks about the exponential increase yeah yeah i whether it's exponential exactly but the point is it's it's faster than a a straightforward one for one linear it's speeding up sure mm -hmm. um and 
I agree with that, and and it has to be something. I think I Robot, you it was perhaps in the film, which I thought was excellent in places. It was looking at 2030 as having these robots, and that's when the danger comes about. Similar sort of danger, amazingly. Yeah. So maybe 2030, people have got to look over their shoulders. By 2045, cyborgs will have to look over their shoulders. Well, bringing in the religious um, side to things, um, yesterday Stephen Hawking uh, made news that uh, in his latest book, he claimed that God was not needed for the beginning of the universe. Uh, so I want to ask you, uh, first of all, do you have any rel religious affiliations yourself, past or present? And do you think that your work would potentially have religious uh, effect or impact on the religion or the major religions of the world? If provided we're successful in creating artificial intelligence. Yeah, I, I have to say, I was brought up, my parents took me to church every week, Church of England, so Protestant type of thing. So it's not as though I'm sitting from the point of view I don't know anything about it. I have to say I'm not an expert on, on religions of the world. And it is interesting giving presentations. I guess every week I'm doing three or four presentations somewhere at a school or at a conference. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing the number of religious people um, and I do mean priests and uh, you know bishops I had the Bishop of Coventry at a presentation uh, in Cambridge a week or two ago very supportive of the work that I'm doing <laughs> Um, somebody was getting critical of what I'm up to and he was no 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 this is it. he was certainly not um, we should retain humanity as it is but saying well if we can improve things then let's improve things so I think there are some religions that are happy to go with it you know they don't see things as being limited the Terran type of thing is, is not necessarily a religious thing. If we can improve the lot, if we can improve health care, but we can also give people intellectual upgrades, then let's do it, um, which has surprised me. Uh, so I don't know that I completely agree with Stephen Hawking. It, it is interesting that he's spent most of his life um, making a living out of the fact that this big bang occurred and uh, you know, and and now he turns back on it a little bit. Uh, I, I I guess that's the nature of uh, theoretical physicists and so on. Um, but we don't we don't. To be honest, we we don't know what happened millions billions of years ago. Yeah. I mean, we don't know for sure it, that there is definitely not a god or lots of gods. Scientifically, it's unlikely. But scientifically, to be honest, I think the Big Bang is is just as unlikely. I mean, it's, it's it's also a bit of a crazy idea. So I mean, we don't really have a clue. Maybe AI researchers ought to come up with a new theory of what happened at the start of the universe. Um, but at the moment, no, I don't think any of the theories are particularly good. So religion is one I, I don't go for particularly. Um, I I don't really like the way religion is treat is hypocritical in many ways i i think uh that the catholic church particularly is very very wealthy 
and then there are very a lot of poor people that give money to the church and i i i find that difficult to uh to live with really in that context i, I to support it anyway um, so I've, I've waffled around the fact I'm not really a religious person. Uh, if people want to be, that's fine. That's up to them. Uh, I don't know that I see it playing a distinct part in the future after the singularity. I can't really see that. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, at the very least, uh, it would have an impact. Uh, but what's interesting to me is to see that you're not an outright atheist, as one may be likely to presume no. but you're more of an agnostic so you, you still have an open mind which is very interesting oh i think as a scientist we have to have an open mind i think that so, some scientists are the worst case for not having an open mind particularly in the <laughs> ai world terrible people this is what <laughs> intelligence is that's it i mean we, we and uh i i like to keep an open mind on religion Yes, it it could there could be a god. I'm not saying there definitely isn't, um, but on everything, I think people talk about telepathy. Can we communicate brain to brain and so on? I, well, maybe we can. We we don't know how to do it yet, but let's see. Let's find out. I mean, there are some things that I'm very skeptical about. Ghosts, for example. Mm -hmm. I mean, I love the film Ghost, but when it comes to are there ghosts, people that have died? And oh, I, I find that scientifically probably less plausible than God. So if you, know, if you rank, but yeah. not, not impossible, but very, very... Highly unlikely. Highly unlikely. Yeah. So, uh, and if I had to rank things on what's likely and what's not, uh, ghosts would probably come near, near the bottom of the list. So... So, what was the most surprising thing that you have discovered for yourself since becoming an artificial intelligence and robotics researcher? Oh, I, th I think... That you totally did not expect or foresee. Okay, well, they didn't expect. I mean, with little robots like this, a lot of research into putting simple learning algorithms so they and then seeing what they learned even with it just mo trying to learn how do i move forwards what do i do with my wheels to do that and not bump into something and the different behaviors that they come up with um robots like this we had for one one time on a, a tiled flooring little tiles little yeah. gaps in the carpet and the robot somehow it picked up learned to move along the 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 lines between the tiles and no idea it was going to do anything but a particular feature in the environment that we hadn't really thought about and it learned a particular way of behaving one robot one one time i was demonstrating it at a school and the children just stopped it moving it tried to go forwards and it was wrong. The children know you're going to bump into something. It tried to go backwards. It was wrong. Everything it did was wrong. It just stopped. It was still working. It was still operating. It had decided, despite the fact that it had a goal to move forwards, that was its basic goal, move forwards. Everything I do is wrong. I'm not going to do anything. And it had stopped. And that amazed me. You know, robots, you give them a goal to learn. Mm -hmm. It can learn to do 
something opposite, something that you didn't expect. It effectively it committed suicide. It just switched its. I mean, it was still switched on and it was still operating, but it wasn't going anywhere. I'm not going to go anywhere. Everything mm-hmm. I do is wrong. I'm not going to go anywhere. And so I think there's some basic things with machines learning, and once you allow a machine to learn, you can't be sure exactly how it's going to behave and how it's going to perform. So that I, connects I, that connects very much into the next question because it seems that we are pretty much totally incapable of predicting the emerging behavior of any potential artificial intelligence. And yeah. therefore the logical question is, I mean, Ray Kurzweil is very often criticized for being way too optimistic about the effect of the technological singularity on us as a species. So I have the, the habit of asking all my um, interviewees uh, to rate our chances of survival. And I'm always greatly surprised about how low people rank it. So in your opinion, what's, the, what's our chance, what's our uh, probability of surviving the, the singularity? As, as humans? As humans or in any other shape or form? Maybe um, cyborgs, maybe non-corporeal entities, doesn't matter, as long as there's continuity between us and whatever comes after. I think as, as hu- if we look humans and humans out of the singularity, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's very low. I mean, I, I wouldn't say probability, there probably will be a few survive on a remote island somewhere. Mm-hmm. Call, they probably called England or something like that. <laughs> this, this island where cyborgs and machines don't want to go because the weather is so awful, they, they're just they're not going to go there. So something like that. Um, so it's not that there's zero probability, but there's just a few as a percentage will survive. In terms of cyborgs, I think if we can link the intellectual abilities of machines with human brains, then there's a very high probability that that's how we will move forward. Um, so, you know, you could be 80, 90 percent. Um, so I'm maybe I'm like Ray, I'm, I'm optimistic in a, a cyborg sense. I'm very pessimistic in a human sense. But note, I didn't go to 100% because I do feel there is that, that Terminator scenario where the intelligent machines, they get in control and that's it. We're, we're, we're out. Whether you're a cyborg or you're a human, you've, the, the, the end is there. Yeah, because my concern with that is is the following. The rate of development, the potential or actual rate of development in the sort of cyborgization or the merging between human and machine intelligence may actually be way slower for a number of reasons than the actual development of self-sufficient AI on its own. Yeah, and, and, I, and therefore, been... if AI develops much, much faster than uh, cyborgs, eventually there may be a point in which both humans on its own or, or human cyborgs are grossly incapable to match or compete against AI. And therefore, both cyborgs and humans may become obsolete. I, I have to say, you're making some very valid points. Um, I mean, I, it was 2002 that I had my last implant. If, if anybody doesn't know, 100 electrodes in my nervous system, yeah. link in my nervous system to the computer and the internet, 
what did I experience? I experienced ultrasonic input, an extra sense. It worked, yes, but it's just a small thing. I experienced controlling a, a robot hand remotely over the internet from brain signals. Mm-hmm. It worked fine. And I experienced a telegraphic form of communication with my wife. Yeah. Great. It was a fantastic scientific experience. But that was 2002. Eight That's years ago. Eight years ago. Yeah. Okay. Since then, with implants, we've had two or three further experiments, dependent on what you count, uh, usually with somebody who has a serious illness, the, the Matt Nagel experiment that John Donahue, mm-hmm. excellent though it was, fantastic, but it's, it, it's just one uh, of two or three the things that have been conducted that you would have to say are in the direction of cyborgization. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, why hasn't Ray Kurzweil had an implant? I, I, you know, I challenge him, Ray, come on, get, you know, if, if there is this, if the action, he should get on with it himself, but others should. I'm, I'm really surprised, and hence I agree with you, that um, we're not really doing the sort of experimentation and testing things, and that was 2002, it's now 2010. We should have hundreds or thousands of people with implants in them, um, I know we, we do have some with magnetic implants, so I know there are other types of implants, but linking the brain and the nervous system. And do we have any at the moment? I, I, don't, I don't see it. So we are going very, very slowly, and that is a worrying feature as far as the future is concerned in terms of cyborgs. Um, I, I think... If I get the feeling intelligent machines are going to take over a couple of years down the line, then I will be straight onto that operating table uh, and have the neural implant in my brain. But what sort of facilities it will give me, what sort of features, it, again, it will be very small experimental um, extras. But aren't you concerned about the so-called early adopters' risk? I mean, for example... I am an early adopter when it comes to technology. Usually when a new update for my software or hardware comes out, I'd like to have it. I'd like to try it. I'd like, I'd like to use it. So I always have the latest operating system version and so on and so on. But when it comes to connecting to, to a machine and upgrading my brain, I mean, the risks there are incomparable. What if we get it wrong? What if during the operation or after the operation, and as you admitted yourself, the AI has some emerging uh, behaviors or uh, patterns that are unpredictable. So, yeah. so there's always a huge amount of risk, especially if you, I mean, it's one thing I would say, which is still very brave, but it's one thing to connect your hand. It's another thing to connect straight into, you know, matrix type yeah. of a connection yeah. into your neocortex or something like that. I mean... What about the early adopter risk? I, I am yeah. an early adopter and I'm scared to do that step that you're eagerly willing to do. And what it, if it, we get it wrong at that moment? What happens with you? What happens with the research? What happens with the general trend? Yeah, well, I, I would like to have the, the neocortex or the a cortical implant. Um, I'm, I know I only look 21, 22, <laughs> But I am, in fact, 56, and um, 
I sort of feel by the time I get to 60, I'm getting into the ballpark where, yes, I'm ready to take the risk. You know, I've, I, I've done a lot of things. I, I've had a lot of fun. Um, I've been with the girl on the park bench and those sort of things. You know, I've done the things that you do. And hence, if something goes wrong, okay, it's going to go wrong. It's taking the risk. If something goes right, then from my point of view, it would be great fun scientifically. I'm sure half the world will grumble at me and say I'm only doing it for publicity and so on because that's what half the world Or does. you're crazy. Or I'm crazy, they will say yeah. that. Neither of which would be entirely the case, but probably both would have <laughs> a little bit of truth in them. Uh, I mean, it would be doing it for scientific purposes to find out, to be perfectly honest. But it could go wrong. For the last implant, yes, it, you're right, it wasn't anywhere near as dangerous. But even then, the surgeon said to me before, all right, the chances of something going wrong are not enormous, but they're not zero, particularly infection getting in. And the way they've done it, they cut away from the nervous system the, the myelin sheath, the protected sheath. And if infection got in, uh, you could lose the use of your hand. So people that say they would give their right hand to do this, well, I did put my right hand, I'm sorry, my left hand, I, I put my hand on the table and said, all right, I could yeah. lose this as a result of the experiment. As it happened, it turned out all right and so on. But I could have lost the use of my hand and then people would say, oh, you silly, you are crazy and so on. But it was a fairly minor risk in comparison. But with it seems the... you're willing to put your brain on the table too. Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, uh, you only have one life. And uh, I believe this is something we can do. We have the technology about now to link a human brain to a computer network. Um, and if only for the communication experiment, yeah, I, that's what I want to do. Yeah, no question about that. Uh, I, I, would, I do not want to die without having tried it. I see. That's, that's most impressive. I consider myself to be a transhumanist, but... Uh, Say, uh, <laughs> I want to make sure it's it's safe. It's safe yeah. before, so I would be watching for sure it's, how it yeah, turns yeah. out for you. <laughs> but I wouldn't be the the first one to lie next next right. to I, the table. I, I think when you do it the first time, you know, people say, "Well, you know what the risks are." When you do something the first time, you don't really know. You know some of the basic elements, like maybe infection gets in, maybe that, but you, there's things will happen that you don't know about. And uh, you, I mean, that's tremendously exciting from a scientific point of view that there are still areas of science that we, we just don't know. And having a go and having a look at those things is fantastic. But it, it means you could get it wrong next time. And in a way, it's like going to the moon or going in space. I mean, you may have done it hundreds of times, but it's anything but routine. Every time that oh, yeah. you do it, yeah. it's an enormously complex task requiring enormous focus and amount of resources to come together for success. And I would imagine that would be the case with uh, hooking up our brain with, with um, a machine interface. And what, what I found, what I found before with the experiment, um, it took a lot of organisation. And you're right, bringing a lot of things together. But there seemed to be an enormous number of people who were trying to stop you doing it. 
Um, and by that, I mean that the surgeons will say, oh, we can't do that because we don't have this piece of technology. We need approval. You have people in the university that are saying we don't have insurance for doing that. You can't do that. So there's lots and lots of people telling you you can't do it. Yeah. But if you want to achieve it, you you just have to keep almost don't listen to them and keep pushing, 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 and eventually you, you get what you're after. So I think as much as the technological problems that we need to face, there are people problems that you have to overcome all these uh, bureaucratic twaddle that is stopping you doing things. Mm -hmm. So uh, right on that topic, my blog's tagline, tagline is... Uh the question, will technology replace biology? So am I correct in assuming that in your mind, in your opinion, the answer is yes? It's yes-ish. I think it will go hand in hand. Biotech will be the future. So I don't think technology will replace biology, but I think it will walk hand in hand with it in the future. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Uh, then si sitting on the fence is typical. <laughs> and very safe, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> academically speaking. <laughs> exactly. I, di I didn't say what percentage, so it's 99% uh, less, I'll, I'll still be right. <laughs> yeah. So if there is one thing that you would like our listeners and our viewers today to take away from this podcast interview with you, what would that be? I, I think the singularity is a tremendously exciting event for those that want to move forward as a biotech entity to imagine the world in millions of dimensions to communicate by thought in terms of emotions and feelings and so on is a tremendously exciting future so if you want to be part of it you probably are going to have to take a few risks in the years ahead um, it's up to you, but it's tremendously exciting. So if you want to be part of the future, don't be afraid to take on risks. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. And, but, it, but it's exciting to take the risks, you know, go for it. It's like a roller coaster ride, you know, it's, it's scary, but it's great fun. And, uh, and the, the thing is here, we don't know where the roller coaster is going, so. Absolutely, yeah. So, um, where can people go and find out more about you and your work? Um, because I'm sure lots of them would be very interested to, to learn more about you. And I would post, of course, a number of links, but uh, what's yeah. the best place to look? Well, there is a website, www.kevinwarwick.com. Um, but if, if they Google, they would probably find quite a bit. And uh, mm. Wikipedia, I think, there's an article. You know, it's it's balanced, yes. I mean, it, it's, it's not completely positive. Like Ray's is quite—I don't know whether Ray writes his himself, <laughs> but, but mine is is balanced. I think is uh, how I'd put it. But uh, but it's it's yeah, you know, it gives other perspectives as well. Very good. Okay. Uh, well, on that note, I would like to thank uh, Professor Kevin Warwick once again for his time, and wish him good luck in his work. Also, thanks to all the listeners and viewers of Singularity Podcast. I hope you all enjoyed uh, listening and watching this interview as much as I enjoyed talking to Professor Kevin Warwick. 
This was another Singularity podcast, which is a feature of singularityweblog.com, where you can go and listen to the recording or download the interview in full. Thank you. Thanks, Nicola.